Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, The Complicated Joy of Being an Older Dad, by Katie Rofi. Then Alyssa Finley wrote, Who's Afraid of Early Cancer Detection? We'll follow that up with The Energy Battle Over Appliances, by John Kyleman. And then Judge Glock wrote, The Welfare State Robs Peter to Pay Peter. And then Megan Cox Gurdon wrote, the highlights of giving up high heels. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, The Complicated Joy of Being an Older Dad. One of my friends was recently mistaken for a grandfather at a playground with his two-year-old son. This is part of a mini-renaissance of old dads. I have been observing in my social circles a proliferation of 50-something men having babies. While their friends are bundling their kids off to college, they are perusing strollers. Some are perennial bachelors, restless, social, fortitious men who have somehow, in their 50s, obtained a child or two. Others simply took longer to find it in themselves to try fatherhood. Of course, there will be disapproving onlookers who note that this is not necessarily in the best interest of the children, that these kids are losing out on parental vigor, that there is something selfish about giving a kindergartner a 60-year-old dad. A recurring conversation and concern among the old dads I know is the vision of themselves carrying boxes up flights of stairs and assembling furniture for their children when they are moving into college dorm rooms. This, I think, stands in for larger anxieties about their mortality. I feel a certain sadness, one of the men told me, for not being there for more of his life. But there may also be some pluses to being older and calmer when you are hanging out with a tiny child. It may be that you can relax and enjoy them more. You can sit on the floor and play because you have to let go of some of the frantic, ambitious energy of earlier years. As one old dad put it, at this age, it's less deranged ambition, more humble purpose. In general, it seems like the age factor is decidedly a mixed bag. For every downside, not being able to do as many sports with your kid, your back hurting when you carry a toddler, there seems to be an upside. Being buffeted and banged up a little by life may bring a richness to parenting. Experience transmutes the atmosphere the child is raised in. One of my old dad friends feels that he is able to talk his kid through interpersonal struggles in a more sophisticated way than he would have when he was younger. Being calmer, more settled, steadier helps with parenting. Several of the old dads said they felt the constraint and sacrifice of staying home with a child less than they would have in younger years. They no longer care about going to parties or spontaneously taking off on a trip. I found it interesting that these men felt some of the same social stigma of childlessness 
and familylessness than single women feel. We tend to think men are immune to these types of pressures, that they glide through life doing whatever they want. But one of the old dads said that having a baby actually improved my standing with my friends and family. People are skeptical and judgmental when you are without a family. Having a child gave me a certain amount of credibility. It made people think I had finally grown up. I was no longer this Peter Pan figure. Another of my friends, with a newborn in his mid-fifties, noted that after his male friends had babies 20 years earlier, I was a curiosity, bringing adventure stories of the single life. I was living their escape fantasies. I didn't realize how superficial our friendships had become till I had a kid and they initiated me into their intense private club of dads. Some may be tempted to argue that behind every radiantly happy old dad is a woman who is doing more of the day-to-day childcare. This is true for many of the old dads I know, but definitely not all of them. The novelist Akhil Sharma, who wrote a gorgeous essay about deciding to have a baby in his early 50s, does more of the child care than his wife, who is finishing an advanced degree. He has felt the blow to his productivity. It's like they say, you sleep when the baby sleeps. You write novels when the baby writes novels. But he is grateful to get to love her. He has become a new person. In some sense, this is a twist on the traditional midlife crisis. Instead of a car or an affair disrupting everything and giving you a fresh start, there is a baby. As a new father, one gets a burst of energy. John Updike once wrote that having affairs gave him a glimmer of immortality. He wrote about bending odd hours into an unprecedented and unsuspected second life. Having a baby so late can do this too. It can give one the feeling of fresh beginnings, newness. You are not young, but you are doing a young thing. The other parents in your child's class are young. A little of that youth brushes off on you. It is rare, deep into adulthood, to be able to reinvent your life, to totally shake up your identity and forge a new one, to embark on a great new project that remakes you. The other day I was shopping for a baby gift for a 50-something new father. Outside it was roaring cold, and as I picked a tiny red sweater from the racks, I felt a brightness. I was happy for my old friend, who has stumbled on this joy after nearly missing it. I felt a little spark of the newness, the energy, the freshness, myself. And now, who's afraid of early cancer detection? A diagnosis of pancreatic cancer usually means a quick death, but not for Roger Royce, who was in stage two of the disease when he got the bad news in July 2022. The five-year relative survival rate for late-stage metastatic pancreatic cancer is 3%, which means that patients are 3% as likely to live five years after their diagnosis as other cancer-free individuals. But if pancreatic cancer is caught before it has spread to other organs, the survival rate is 44%. The trouble is that this cancer is almost never caught early. There's no routine screening for it, and symptoms don't develop until it is advanced. Mr. Royce, 64, had no idea he was sick until he took a blood test called Galeri, produced by the Menlo Park 
California startup, Grail. He had surgery and chemotherapy and is now cancer-free. Early diagnosis is the best defense against most cancers. As President Biden noted when he announced his Cancer Moonshot initiative two years ago, but only a handful of cancers of the breast, lung, colon, and cervix have screening tests recommended by the United States Preventive Services Task Force, an independent panel that evaluates medical screenings. Many companies are developing blood tests that can detect cancer signals before symptoms occur, and Grail's is the most advanced. A study found it identify more than 50 types of cancer 52% of the time and the 12 deadliest cancers in stage 1 through 3 68% of the time. There's a hitch. The test costs $949 and is not covered by Medicare or most private insurance. Mr. Royce, a lawyer who works with Silicon Valley startups, paid out-of-pocket for the test and follow-up imaging to confirm his cancer. Most Americans can't afford to do so, and some public health experts think that's just as well. They fret that widespread use of multi-cancer early detection tests would cause health care spending to explode. Those fields have snarled Galeri and similar tests in a web of red tape. Mr. Royce learned about Grail's test in April 2022 and asked his physician about it. He said it was unnecessary and you don't have symptoms, Mr. Royce said. A second doctor also refused to prescribe it. So Mr. Royce visited Grail's website, which referred him to a telemedicine provider who ordered a test. Another telemedicine doctor walked him through his results which showed a cancer signal likely emanating from the pancreas, gallbladder, stomach, or esophagus. An MRI revealed a suspicious mass on his pancreas, which a biopsy confirmed was cancerous. Mr. Royce had three months of chemotherapy, surgery, and another three months of chemotherapy, which ended last February. Because pancreatic cancer often recurs, he gets CT and MRI scans every three months. In addition, he has signed up for startup Natera's Signatera customized blood test, which checks DNA specific to the patient's cancer and can signal its return before signs are visible on the scans. Grail's test likewise looks for DNA shed by cancer cells, which is tagged by molecules called methyl groups that are specific to a cancer's origin. Grail uses genetic sequencing and machine learning to recognize links between DNA methyl groups and particular cancers. The test is based on how much DNA is being shed by tumors, Grail's president, Josh Offman, says. Some tumors shed a lot of DNA, some shed almost none. But slow-growing tumors typically aren't shedding a lot of DNA. That reduces the probability that Grail's test will identify indolent cancers that pose no immediate danger. Grail's test has a roughly 0.5% false positive rate, meaning 1 in 200 patients who don't have cancer will get a positive signal. Its positive predictive value is 43%, so that of every 100 patients with a positive signal, 43 actually have cancer. That may sound low, but the positive predictive value for some recommended cancer screenings is far lower. 
Fewer than 1 in 10 women with an abnormal finding on a mammogram are diagnosed with breast cancer. Because GRAIL uses machine learning to detect DNA methylation cancer linkages, the GRAIL's test accuracy should improve as more tests and patient data are collected. Dr. Hoffman says the company also aims to reduce the test costs by scaling up manufacturing and detecting cancers with less genetic sequencing. But therein lies a chicken and egg problem. Patient access is limited by Galeri's lack of Food and Drug Administration's approval and insurance coverage. These could help reduce the test costs and improve its accuracy. But regulators may balk at approving the test and insurers at covering it until it becomes cheaper and more reliable. Regulators classify Galeri as a lab-developed test. Such tests are overseen by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and can be prescribed without FDA approval. This regulatory pathway allows hospitals, research centers, and startups to develop tests without running the FDA's bureaucratic gantlet. Since diagnostic tests can't injure patients, no safety review is necessary. The FDA in October proposed regulating lab-developed tests as medical devices, which generally require agency approval. That could severely curtail patient access and slow test development since the FDA doesn't have the personnel to evaluate the tens of thousands of lab-developed tests on the market. The rules public comment period closed back on December 4th. How would the FDA weigh the risk that a false positive on a test like Grail's could require invasive follow-up testing against the dire but hard-to-quantify risk that a deadly cancer wouldn't be caught until it's much harder to treat? It's unclear. But some experts urge the FDA to require large randomized controlled trials before approving blood cancer tests. Multi-cancer screening would entail tremendous costs and potentially substantial harms, J. Gilbert Welsh and Tanusha Day of Brigham and Women's Hospital wrote in the Journal of the American Medical Association on August 28th. Dr. Welsh and Mr. Day also suggested that companies should be required to prove their tests reduce overall mortality even though the FDA doesn't require drug makers to prove their products reduce deaths or extend life. Clinical trials for the mRNA COVID vaccines didn't show they reduced deaths. Requiring randomized controlled trials and FDA approval for multi-cancer early detection tests could restrict access for years. Hundreds of thousands of patients would likely have to be enrolled in trials some receiving the tests with others in a control group. They would have to be followed over many years to determine whether patients who received the test were diagnosed with specific cancers earlier than those in the control group and how much longer they lived as a result. Proving a statistically significant benefit could take a decade or longer. One alternative is to rely on real-world studies, which Grail is already doing. One study of patients 50 and older without signs of cancer showed that the test doubled the number of cancers detected. The FDA could also approve the test, and CMS could provide Medicare coverage, 
on the condition that providers collect patient data that can be used to analyze the benefits. Danik Goldman, the University of Southern California's Dean of Public Policy, likes that idea. There will be a lot of suffering if we have to wait 10 years for the test to be approved. Mr. Goldman has spent decades studying the economics of medical treatments. One recurring problem he has seen? Epidemiologists are always getting cancer wrong, he said. Epidemiologists a decade ago said the United States overtreats cancers. Well, no, the European Union undertreats cancer. A 2012 study that he co-authored found that the higher United States spending on cancer care relative to Europe between 1983 and 1999 resulted in significantly higher survival rates for American patients than for those in Europe. By his study's calculation, United States spending on cancer treatments during that period resulted in $556 billion in net benefits owing to reduced mortality. He expects Galeri and other multi-cancer early detection tests to reduce deaths and produce public health and economic benefits that exceed their monetary costs. Cancers caught early are cheaper to treat, less likely to require a cocktail of expensive therapies, and in some cases removable without the need for chemotherapy. Preventer Preventing cancer deaths would expand the workforce. Expanding access to multi-cancer early detection tests could also help solve the chicken and egg problem of drug development. Because few patients are diagnosed at early stages of some cancers, it's hard to develop treatments for them. How do you develop a drug for stage 1 pancreatic cancer when you don't have patients for trials, Mr. Goldman asks. Grail hopes to obtain FDA approval for its test. But while that would help patients with private insurance, Medicare doesn't pay for screening tests unless they are recommended by the United States Preventive Services Task Force. The task force has historically been slow to back cancer screening, in part owing to fear of overtreatment. Mr. Royce says that it has twice recommended against early detection cancer screenings for pancreatic cancer in asymptomatic patients. When asked why, he says the task force told him that screening tests are invasive, cause pain, and lead to unnecessary and risky treatment. Congress had to pass legislation requiring Medicare to cover screening for breast, colorectal, cervical, and prostate cancers. Legislation in the House and Senate would allow Medicare to cover GRAIL and all the multi-cancer early detection tests if they obtain FDA approval. The Senate bill has 59 co-sponsors, 31 Democrats, 26 Republicans, and 2 Independents. A House version has 243 co-sponsors, 134 Democrats, and 109 Republicans. Not only will this bill save lives, but it will also help reduce the glaring racial disparities in cancer diagnosis and death said co-sponsor Representative Terry Sewell, Democrat from Alabama. But the legislation's price tag could reduce political support. According to one private company's estimate, the test could cost the government $39 billion to $145 billion over a decade. Mr. Goldman counters that analysts usually overestimate the costs 
and underestimates the benefits of medical interventions. Mr. Royce makes the same point with personal force. I would be dead right now if not for multi-cancer early detection testing, Mr. Royce told an FDA advisory committee last fall. The longer the FDA waits, the more people are going to die. It's that simple. And now, the energy battle over appliances. When Jessica Romer pulls clothes out of her new washer-dryer, they feel cool and a bit damp, but dry to the touch within seconds. Using no electric heating element or natural gas, the unit's dryer employs a pump to draw in ambient heat from its surroundings, making it 50% more energy efficient than traditional models, those without producing that warm, toasty feel. It's different and strange, said Romer, who lives in northern Florida, but it does work. Whether Romer's heat pump dryer represents the pinnacle of energy efficiency or just the latest stop on a long climb is part of a debate in Washington. The Energy Department requires appliance makers to meet efficiency standards that are periodically reviewed and tightened a rule that sparked a recent tussle over glass stoves. Manufacturers are pushing for a change. An industry group says appliances are far more efficient than versions sold a few decades ago, and some can't improve much more without harming performance. It wants evolving technology to drive the standards, not government timetables. The reality of the laws of physics that require some amount of energy and water for home appliances to keep food cold and to clean and dry clothes and dishes has to be recognized, Kevin Mesner, chief policy officer of the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers, told a congressional hearing last year. Andrew DeLasky of the Appliance Standards Awareness Project, which advocates for greater energy efficiency, said government pressure is necessary to keep the breakthroughs coming. For decades, home appliances weren't subject to federal efficiency rules. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan signed the National Appliance Energy Conservation Act, which established minimum standards. The Energy Department is obligated to revisit them periodically, with new proposals six years after the previous rules are completed. The agency recently tightened the rules for refrigerators and stoves based on agreements reached between the appliance industry and environmental and consumer groups. Standards for dishwashers, washing machines, clothes dryers, and beverage coolers are expected to be completed by mid-2024. New rules for all the products should go into effect over the next three to six years. The Appliance Standards Awareness Project said they would cut the average household's annual utility bill by $120 and, over three decades, keep 270 million metric tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, equivalent to the annual use of 34 million homes. As the standards have grown more demanding, the industry has kept pace through technical advances. Those include new compressors and refrigerators, which are better at keeping a consistent temperature, and more sophisticated termination controls that stop clothes dryers when the job is done. 
Dishwashers have better motors and pumps and now need only 3.5 gallons of water per load, which means water heaters don't need to use as much energy to warm the spray. Whirlpool has developed an insulation for refrigerators that uses vacuum-sealed powder in place of polyurethane foam. That allows the fridge interior walls to be thinner, expanding capacity by 25%, or if made at the usual thickness, to be far more efficient than traditional models. Whirlpool's head of sustainability, Pamela Quinn, said other appliances are approaching their efficiency limits. Reducing the electricity consumption of a contemporary microwave oven, for instance, would mean removing the clock, she said. Paul Storch, whose Bronx, New York company, Felix Storch Incorporated, imports and manufactures niche appliances, said the new regulations mean the small refrigerators he sells for cramped apartments will need updated compressors, which could pray which could rise prices by as much as 10%, roughly $50 to $100. Is the higher cost recovered through the savings in energy, he said? That's the litmus test about whether these are logical. Energy department calculations show shoppers can expect a modest return once the updated standards are in place. Those who buy a standard size refrigerator could be $51 to $143 ahead at the end of its expected 14.5 year lifespan once the higher price is offset by lower energy bills. The Appliance Manufacturers Association said it supports the federal efficiency standards but is lobbying Congress to change the six year time clock. New standards should be imposed only when technology and consumer benefits justify them, according to the group. Representative Debbie Lesko, Republican Arizona, in November introduced the Hands Off Our Home Appliances Act, which she said would prevent the Energy Department from mandated changes that aren't cost-effective. The Appliance Standards Awareness Project said regulators already must take that into account. Shanika Whitehurst, Associate Director of Product Sustainability at Consumer Reports, said the group's testing has found better efficiency generally correlates with better performance and reliability, yet many people aren't happy with the appliances. The Energy Department's rulemaking process drew scores of public complaints, with some saying energy-efficient models are too expensive, don't work well, and sometimes break easily. Some commentators sarcastically suggested going back to washing clothes in a creek and drying them on clotheslines. And now let's do the welfare state robs Peter to pay Peter. The American welfare state is built on the idea of taxing those who are better off to give to those who are in need. Yet in today's massive welfare state, many who receive benefits from the government also pay substantial taxes. New research by the Manhattan Institute analyzes the amount of government benefits that are offset by taxes on the same households in the same year. The report estimated that about 20% of government benefits are returned to the government through taxes. That means that in 2022, almost $800 billion, or roughly what the government spent on defense, 
when out one door and in another. These taxes cancel or net out equivalent benefits, so some could argue that they aren't a, that they aren't a problem. But taking money only to give it back again is costly and inefficient. Families ultimately bear the cost of applying for and maintaining benefits. The government takes hard-earned cash through taxation, but often provides benefits in a less useful form, such as housing vouchers or food stamps. Both taxes and benefit programs distort decisions. Taxes deter people from working. Means-based programs such as food stamps pay less benefits as recipient incomes go up. This amounts to an implicit tax on earnings. Abundant evidence shows that certain kinds of taxes and welfare can also deter marriage. Giving benefits and then taxing recipients doesn't only recirculate money, it destroys wealth and limits options. Many claim that the so-called middle-class welfare state, including health insurance subsidies and means-tested programs for workers far up the income ladder, is a boon to working families. But taxes that cancel out benefits are the highest for households that aren't poor and don't receive Social Security. For them, about 45% of all benefits are returned as taxes. For those in poverty, only about 3% of benefits are returned in taxes. Understanding this should make lawmakers think twice about creating a universal, European-style welfare state in the United States. Europe's programs come with payroll and sales taxes that are in some cases double the American rates. These high taxes are paid by the same families that receive the supposed benefits. It would be better for the United States to give targeted help to those in need instead of increasing taxes only to return some of the money in less useful forms. By any reasonable measure, taxing people and then giving them benefits is a waste of time and money. Government can shrink itself significantly without costing any household a dime by cutting both taxes on and benefits to households receiving government support. This would reduce waste and increase options for everyone. That would be better than forcing Americans to chase after money they already earned. And now, the highlights of giving up high heels. At a party recently, a curious sense of delight stole over me. I discovered a silver lining in what had been a dark cloud. Four weeks earlier, a doctor had discovered structural problems in my feet and told me that I must immediately give up high heels and from now on wear only low, supportive, roomy shoes. I was shocked by the existential blow. On the cusp of 60, I knew that someday I'd have to make modifications. But I had imagined trading tennis for pickleball or using elevators instead of stairs. It hadn't occurred to me that I would ever have to renounce pretty shoes. I felt I was having to surrender not merely a type of attire, but also my understanding of myself. Since becoming an adult, I doubt I've ever been to a party or to an interview, restaurant, wedding, baptism, or funeral without wearing heels. To dress in anything but athleisure was to pop up shoes as fashionable and teetery as I could manage. Men's trousers are cut to suit the standard shape of men's shoes. 
For women, there is a finer calculus. Our clothes are exquisitely calibrated to the height of the heel. Often, if you can't wear the heel, you can't wear the dress. It just doesn't work. Looking at the beloved, unwearable objects in my closet, I was struck by how my shoes were more than the sum of their parts. They had personalities and histories. The pointy-toed cheetah print block heels that I used when giving speeches, the dainty sandals that were a birthday gift from my husband, the gold slingbacks that danced at our eldest daughter's wedding, the red-soled patent leathers that went with everything. And now they all had to go. I felt absurdly sorry for myself. No amount of furious inner chastisement, oh for Pete's sake, buck up, could dispel the prevailing gloom. Heels connote elegance, glamour, confidence, and power. A woman striding about in sensible footwear may exude those qualities, but her shoes won't help. Google how to look good at 60, and one bit of advice you will receive is to avoid orthopedic shoes. So there I was with that curious feeling of delight. I was at a party, and get this, my feet didn't hurt. Until that moment, I had not appreciated the degree to which the discomfort of high heels, the crushed toes, the pressure on the balls of the feet, had been part of the experience of standing around having cocktails. This time I felt no pain. The champagne was part of it, of course, but so were my comfy shoes. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.